fairly long passage today, and I'll be uh, picking out a number of thoughts that I want to share with you in the midst of it. You know, sometimes cancer is seen. It appears as an ugly sore on the skin. Uh, sometimes cancer is unseen. It lies submerged as an internal growth. A disease that works internally under the veneer of health is the most dangerous. And let me make the transfer here. In the spiritual realm, following Christ for the wrong motives can be more dangerous than openly rejecting him. And here's why. False Christianity is really unbelief under the veneer of belief. It's like a disease that works internally under the veneer of health. The Bible repeatedly warns against thinking you're a Christian when you're really not. And uh, there's a few parables that Jesus wrote that I'd like to share with you that help explain it. There's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Many of you are familiar with that. They all look the same on the outside, but only five of them were waiting for the bridegroom. The other five were not, and in the end they were rejected. There's the parable of the two houses. We're perhaps more familiar with this. Both houses looked the same from the outside, but one was built on a rock and the other was built on sand, and in the end the one that was built on sand crumbles. And then there's the parable of the four soils. The four different soils that uh, Jesus uh, mentions there in the gospel accounts refer to different kinds of hearts with respect to their receptivity to the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the uh, soils has no vegetation. Three of them have some vegetation but only one out of the three proved to be authentic and actually bears fruit. Now, in Luke chapter 9, a man says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you happen to go. And Jesus gives him a surprisingly cold response. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you choose to follow Christ, uh, it may cost you what you value here the most. And we need to understand that before we make a commitment. Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says, many will come up to the Lord and say, Lord, we did many good things in your name. Uh, And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, which means we don't have a relationship. So Christianity is a bit deeper and a little bit more complex than what a lot of people in our community think, and that's just doing good. Uh, Our motives have to be right as well. And today what I want to do is just highlight a couple of very basic characteristics of what a true follower of Christ is, what he or she happens to look like. And the first major point there in your bulletin outline is that a true follower accepts the demands of Christ. Uh, Many of those 
that were following Christ at that particular time, in the first century there, uh, were troubled by a statement that he made about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they said, this is a hard saying. Uh, you know, when they said that, they, they didn't really mean, when they said this is a hard saying, they didn't really mean that it was hard to understand. What they were referring to is that it's hard to accept. They, they, they didn't uh, like the idea of accepting that at all. And many of them simply left. Now, what they failed to understand is that Jesus was speaking, of course, metaphorically. His body and blood, when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it's not a, a statement of communion like we celebrate here, uh, metaphorically, so to speak. It's, uh, it's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. And Jesus is saying, you know, I have to be your food and your drink. And your food and drink is sort of the engine behind your energy. Your food and drink is that which drives your life. And Jesus says your food and drink can't be your family. It can't be your career. It can't be your hobby. It has to be me. He says, I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a moral guide. I need to be the center of your life. I need to be the nucleus of your life. I need to be the thing that matters more than anything else. Now, you can often tell what happens to be at the center of a person's life by how they respond to adversity. I heard a couple of stories a while back. One had to do with life in Argentina during a time when there was a crisis with their banking system. And there was a woman uh, there that uh, her name was Norma Albino, and she went to the bank in order to draw out some money, and there wasn't any money. And she was so distraught that she actually poured rubbing alcohol over her head and lit her entire body on fire. Uh, then there was another story about a, a lesbian uh, named Lupita Benitez. And she sued her Christian doctor, a woman named uh, Christine Brody, because Christine Brody wouldn't do artificial insemination so that she could bear and raise a child with a lesbian teammate, or a roommate, I should say. And for Christine Brody, her Christian faith was the most important thing in her life, not her medical practice. So Jesus, when he's talking to his people, says, you know what? I need to be number one. I need to be your meat and your drink. Now, non-followers of Christ often have an excellent understanding of the magnitude of his demands, particularly here in America. You know, we were born as a Christian nation, and certainly we've swung away from that to a certain massive degree. But people are familiar with the demands of Christ. They just aren't interested in obeying them. Uh, a true Christian understands, understands those claims and says, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to accept them. I want Christ to be the center of my life. I want him to be my nucleus. 
Now, many today will give a measure of patronage to the faith, but they don't accept the demands of Christ. They don't want Christ to be first and foremost in their daily existence. And as a result, the Christian faith hasn't produced the fruit that it ought to produce in a person's life. Let me give you a few examples that I read from a book, at least in a a summary fashion of that a while back, uh, about why people become casual but not committed followers of Christ. And uh, it's illustrated in our scripture. The first one is some people follow Christ because that happens to be the way the masses are moving. We see that in our scripture here in John 6, 2. It says, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs that he was performing on those who were sick. He was healing them. And so when people are following it, it's kind of like mob psychology, and it's very powerful. It's hard to believe what a crowd disbelieves. It's hard to disbelieve what a crowd believes. And it's easy to get plunged into a current of ideas simply because it happens to be the happening thing, the next best thing that keeps coming along. Uh, Second, some people follow Christ because they think Christ is going to be benevolent to them. It's going to give them good things. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before. In verse 26, it says, they followed Jesus because he filled their stomachs. Now, sometimes we are exposed to individuals uh, who come to Christ, and there is just massive changes in his or her life as a result of the power of Christ. And God is dealing, for instance, with their anger or with their anxiety or some of the hang-ups that they have that keep them from being fully alive within the community that they exist. And God is always dealing with them. And people see that and they say, you know what, I think I'll give Christianity a try. I need some of those changes in my own life. And if I... I get a little bit of a return, I'll continue, and I'll make a little bigger investment next time. Now, if those are the terms, then in reality, we don't want God. We want what God might be able to give us to make us happier. And real Christianity is willing to say, you know what, I'm suffering, and I need comfort to be sure, but even more importantly, I am a sinner, and I need pardon, And I need to be under the scope of the umbrella of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, some follow Christ simply out of guilt rather than grace. And this is a sad one simply because it's the grace of God in our own lives that supplies the real engine for our motivation to continue to follow him because we could never have that kind of grace from any other person. But some become very laxed in disciplines of morality. In, 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 you know, they might come to church occasionally to lessen the intensity of their guilt. But there's no real desire at times to restructure their life around what it means to know Christ and what it means to follow Christ. So, a true follower of Christ, on one hand, accepts the demands of Christ. 
Uh, they don't want to do an end run around some of the very difficult sayings or some of the things that God would command them to do. And they don't want to do it, and they, they just want to get the, if you please, the benefits without the commitment. And eventually it all dries up. Uh, interestingly, if you do come to Christ, you are part of a group. And this assembly right here is an illustration of that. The youth group is an illustration of that. The children's ministry uh, is an illustration of that. And you have a basis of dealing with issues in your life with a, a community. Uh, you, you discover what God has to say, and the others point you to the fact that you can find relief from your own guilt and wisdom and discernment during times of difficulty. And it's really part of why the community is so valuable. We keep reminding people uh, of the beauty of what Christ came to do. And sometimes people are so buried in some difficulty that they can't even look up. And so we continue to lift people up so that they will, in fact, see him. So a true follower of Christ accepts his demands. Second, a true follower understands the devotion that Jesus Christ has to him or to her. Um, and when we understand the devotion that Jesus, that the Lord Jesus has for us, we have an ability, we have the, 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 the kind of knowledge that is just absolutely blown away, that will, that will make us just incredibly grateful for what God has done. Uh, verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Everybody else is leaving. What about you? And Peter is very quick to answer that. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And with that particular question, what Peter is uncovering is the essence of Christianity. It revolves around Jesus Christ. Now, his question was rhetorical. You know, there's no place we can go is what he's really talking about. You know, and yet uh, it, it can sink in to our own heart and be shed abroad in our lives and play out in the community itself. You know, as kids... Uh, get older, and there's a lot of young people as well as children in our church here proportionally to adults, but uh, we as adults will have a tendency as they continue to get a little older, uh, make sure that you're, you're doing well in school and be diligent about that, and uh, make sure as well that you're spending your money wisely and uh, that you're not following the wrong crowd. And uh, the natural response of most kids, and certainly the four sons that I raised and my, Suzanne raised, was, don't worry about it, Dad. We've got it all handled. It's under control. But parents still have a, a, a measure of worry as their kids. You understand, you know, all of these young people in the front rows here uh, are all backed up by not only the concern of mom and dad, but the prayers of mom and dad that things will operate well uh, for your benefit and the glory of the Lord. And that's the beauty of parenthood and uh, why things, the, the batons are continually passed on. 
And the reason people oftentimes choke on Christian theology is because Christian theology, you open the Bible and it's just a reminder that we don't have things under control. We realize, you know what, this week, really this past month, I haven't loved God with my whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves, And the reason we haven't is simply because the sin that was in us that certainly flaws our own humanity to begin with continues to rise up and we continue to focus on number one. You see, when Peter asked the Lord, to whom shall he, we go, he was really admitting his own inability. He says, Lord, you alone have words of eternal life. And what Peter does here is he accepts the demands of Christ, but he recognizes his own helplessness to meet those demands. And so he takes refuge in the devotion that Christ has for him, even in the midst of his own daily failures to really please God like he or she wants to do that. And so in giving eternal life, he gives us eternal life that we could not earn. And we be, when we begin to compl- uh, contemplate on that, when we begin to meditate on that, God gave me eternal life that I've not earned, that Christ earned for me. God gave it to me in spite of the fact that I was going the other way. And when you meditate on it, something like that, And let that be part of your daily thinking. There'll be such gratitude that wells up in your own heart that your eternal future is totally squared away. That you cannot help but be thankful to God just about every hour of every single day. Because that's the kind of God that he is. He wants us to understand what he has done for us. And if we understand what he has done for us, if we truly understand, if we let it drop that 18 inches from our head to our heart and it takes root in our lives, we will be the kind of young people and older people and all the people in between that, the kind of people that God can use not just to bless but also to spread abroad his his work. I'd like to share with you, um, kind of as a a concluding thought here, Uh, one of the great stories of devotion in the Bible really takes place in 2 Samuel. And I might have shared this a year or two ago, but it's such a good story that it bears remembrance again. But when David, about David lived around 1000 B.C., But uh, when he became king over the nation of Israel, the Philistines, his old nemesis, uh, came up against him. And see, they didn't want David to come in and consolidate the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and become powerful. And so what the Philistines did, they drove right into Judah itself, which is in the middle of Israel, and they, they captured the city of Jerusalem. They were trying to just bisect the kingdom to keep David from consolidating the kingdom. And they captured Jerusalem, which is the city of David, and David had to flee into the wilderness and mount a defense on the run. 
Now, the wilderness of Judea is very barren, and some of you have recently been over there and have seen it, and you know how barren and drab it really is. Some of you will be going very soon, and you'll see how barren and drab it really is. But while they were out in the wilderness and coming together, David was just talking to himself, walking around talking to himself, and he just sighed, oh, would I ever love to have a drink from the water that's in the well at the gate of the city of Bethlehem, my hometown. And David had water. There were a number of oases out in the wilderness, and they, they had plenty of water to drink. It was just simply a sigh on David's part of looking forward to the time when the nation would be unified, that they would be uh, serving as one body, the God that, that preserved them, that, uh, that was ultimately going to send the Messiah to save uh, those who believed in him. And so David was just uh, dreaming of the kingdom together, coming together. And what happened next is absolutely amazing because as David was just muttering and talking to himself, three of his mighty men overheard him just desire water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And these three mighty men that served under David didn't say a word. They got together, they strapped on their swords, they made their way across the Judean desert into the city of Bethlehem, overcoming a lot of conflict and a lot of danger. And somehow they got inside of Bethlehem. They had taken a picture with them And they found the well that was there, and they dipped that pitcher down and pulled up the water. And then they made their way back across the Judean desert without drinking any of that water. I have absolutely no idea how long they were gone. Perhaps, Perhaps a water or two. Thank you. Rescue me. I don't know how long they were gone, maybe a week or two, but they they were gone. And they came back with that picture, and they walked up to David, and they said, David, our beloved king and leader, spiritual advisor, here's water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And David was so thunderstruck at the devotion and the loyalty of these men that he couldn't drink the water. He poured the water right out on the ground. And he said, far, (laughs) you say a wasted trip. No, it wasn't a wasted trip. Yeah, and that's, he probably had those kinds of eyes when he did it. But he poured the water out on the ground and he said, far be it for me to drink this water that came at the risk of my men's lives. I'm not worthy of that kind of devotion. And he just wouldn't drink the water. He simply poured it out. A couple of lessons come out of this story here. Uh, One of the things that we learn from this story is that uh, we learn something about human devotion. 
You know, when we're devoted to one another, and again, I, I hate to brag on this assembly here, but you know, you're so devoted to one another, and when you're devoted to one another, you know, you don't need a command. All you need is a sigh. You don't need a request. Just, you just know it, and you go out, and you meet the need. Just a simple yearning of a friend is your glad compulsion. And that's the beauty of servanthood. We're not trying to climb a ladder. We're just trying to be servants. And uh, those who are the most secure, those who feel most mature are the ones who are the greatest servants in this assembly that are here. You know, uh, You know, David knew that he wasn't worthy of that devotion, and so he did pour the water out. <clears throat> but uh, there was one person that uh, was worthy of that kind of devotion. And I, I remember reading in, a long time ago in one of Tim Keller's books, and he talks a little bit about this story, but he said, he said uh, there is one who, who is the anointed one who is worthy of the waters of our spontaneous love, if I remember the quote correctly. But uh, there's a second lesson that comes out of this, and we learn something about the devotion that God has toward you and me. And uh, the mighty men reflect a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is kind of like our warrior king who broke through enemy lines to bring the living water to you and to me. And uh, he did it not at the risk of his life like the mighty men, but he did it at the cost of his life. And are you and I worthy of that kind of devotion Uh, of God himself, Jesus Christ himself? Are we worthy of the devotion of the divine, pure one? And the answer is absolutely not. But he brings us the living water and he says, whatever you do, even though you're not worthy of this devotion, make sure that you don't pour it out. You go ahead and you drink it. And every time you drink it, you understand just how devoted I am to you. You know, and the more we're able to grasp uh, God's devotion to us, the more we understand God's love to us, the more loving and the more devoted we will be to one another. If we're struggling with insecurity, it's because we just forget how much Christ loves us. And it's understanding that that enables us to be a community. If we're not sure, then we can't be the community. If we are sure, then we can bring the community. And Peter got it. No wonder he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Nobody else has words of eternal life. Nobody else is so devoted to us as you. And what he does is he brings, Jesus brings us under his tender power and love and gentleness. And he simply says, will you do for others? Will you serve others in the way that I have served you? Will you be willing to lay down your life for others? 
That's the thing that we learn from David, but you go all the way back, and the thing that Jesus is trying to get through to his disciples, ultimately they're going to take over. And uh, only one defected. The rest, in many cases, were martyred. But they stayed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to following their example as Christ taught them. Will you bow with me in prayer? Worship team, you can make your way back up. Our uh, Father, we think about uh, what you've done to uh, give us the kind of security and freedom. Uh, You've died for us on the cross, and then, Lord, you sent your Spirit to indwell us and to remind us uh, each and every day that uh, you are our security. And the things that we worry about, uh, we realize are things of this earth. And Father, we thank you that uh, because you've done the big thing, you're concerned about the little things in our life as well. And certainly, uh, we all know that uh, with the people in this room, that there's all kinds of concerns and worries uh, that are there right now. And we just thank you that you are thoroughly adequate uh, to be that kind of comfort. Uh, You infinitely love us more than we love our own selves and our own children and our own parents. Uh, You're the pace setter in that. Lord, I pray that uh, no one would leave this uh, room today uh, without knowing how much you care and love us. And we thank you that we can leave with that kind of confidence. In Christ's name, amen.